What is up, everyone? I am Chris Sinclair. Welcome to the Good Bottle Podcast. I am joined by my fellow host, Jude Garrison. We are a couple of self-proclaimed booze pundits with a lifetime of industry experience reaching all the way back to washing dishes and cleaning pizza ovens, all the way to owning multiple businesses and selling some of the most exclusive brands in the world. Our goal is to walk you through today's most interesting alcohol industry headlines while sipping some amazing shit as we do it. Drew, what are we talking about today, buddy? Chris, this episode is more exciting than an ICU at capacity. We have the most valuable brands in the world and whether they got more valuable or less over the past year. And we have um, a prohibition era safe of bottles was found all over somebody's house. We're going to jump into that. We're going to have our dope follows of the week. And of course, we're going to be sipping on some great spirits as we do that. So with that said... What are you sipping on there, bud? Oh man, I uh, I I uh, like I said the last couple times, like I'm feeling the, the holiday season. Uh, even though we're here in Sacramento, where it was like 70 degrees today, <laughs> doesn't matter. It's in your heart. It's how you feel. You bring it. You uh, you got to represent it, you know, properly. So I am a I am drinking an herbal bitter liqueur by Bordiga, which is an Italian uh, uh, wine house, but they also they also make some spirits and some liqueurs, um, and it is called Centum Urbis. Now Centum Urbis uh, falls under the the realm of liqueurs that would be like a Genepi. Um, a Genepi is an Alpine liqueur. Think of um, green chartreuse. Green Chartreuse is a Genepi, uh, and there's a few other brands out there. Um, but Bordiga is located um, in the in the Piedmont region, and so all of these all of these herbs come from the Piedmontese mountains. Uh, Piedmont is in the northwestern edge of Italy, and the the mountains separate uh, separate France and Switzerland. I don't know now what the difference is between like. The Alps, like French Alps, Swiss Alps, uh, Italian Alps, and the Piedmontese Mountains. I don't, I don't know if there's a difference there. I don't know if it's just a regional thing about you know, you know, this is attached to Piedmont, so these are Piedmontese Mountains. Uh, I'm sure someone out there can can correct me uh, or at least clarify this for me. But um, anyway, this liqueur, which I'm drinking on ice and a glass full of it, is bright green and freaking delicious. And it uh, it makes me feel like I I am uh, on a mountain somewhere, and I miss the snow right now. So uh, I, I'm taking it. I think I think you got to follow your heart there. Also, um, you might have tapped in to a uh, a subject that has been covered quite a few times in terms of the which is better, Swiss Alps versus Italian Alps. So. <laughs> There is legitimate, like I'm finding multiple websites to look up, uh, comparing the two. Is that, is that real? That's, um, that's amazing. Yeah, you know, it's, it's very real. I mean, I'm getting my producer credit here and, um, like the first thing that popped up on like the Google search was, it's like, oh, well, you know, they're both beautiful, but Italian Alps, Alps are accessible, you know or not as accessible as the Swiss ones are. And it's just kind of like, it's like, well, okay, what are, what are we getting into here? And then of course the next article is, you know, which is better. And then the one after that Dolomites versus Swiss Alps. And then it's just, it goes 
on and on and on. So this is <laughs> this is one of those rabbit holes that you're just kind of like you're like there's there's a there's a group of people who really care about this topic. You know, the That's same like, way that we care about like all this stupid shit with with spirits, it's like we have our Swiss and Italian Alps people. That's right. But to me, that's like saying uh, I care more about California Sierra Mountains versus the Nevada Sierra Mountains. Um, <laughs> it's it's all the same to me. But um, who am I? You know, who am I? You're obviously uh, completely ignorant when it comes to your mountain knowledge. That's that's what you are. That's fair. Uh, except for except for spending time in the snow and in them, uh, I guess. I guess my regional, my re, my regional uh, preferences are are lacking. So yeah, yeah, you need to you need to do this Google search after. And All right. Well, I, I, think, I think really, uh, really direct knowledge is the best way to go. You know, you have to go to the wellspring and discover that. So uh, well, I have if we're ever to travel my... again, we'll put it on the list. That's right. Podcast will pay for me to travel to the Swiss and Italian Alps, and uh, I'll let you guys know. Oh, True. Man. What are you? What are you sipping on there, buddy? So, um, as you know, and some insider podcast knowledge for our listeners at home, we were going to record yesterday, and then I had to do some dad duties and had to bow out last minute. And I actually had this really beautiful bottle of the Kilhoman cast strength um, this year's Christmas edition that I was sipping on and I was just really loving it. And I was planning, I was like, okay, I'll just do that again tomorrow. And then I got some new sample bottles and was just trying them out. And I was like, wow, this is actually really good. Okay. Now I'm going to go pour the scotch and in world breaking news, I actually stuck with a bourbon over a scotch tonight. Wow. I mean, that's a, uh, that's really insider humor. Uh, people really have to know you and have to follow you on social media to understand that reference. But please yeah, explain well, why you chose said bourbon over, over your beautiful scotch tonight. You know, I think the big misconception about me is that I hate bourbon and that's not the case at all. I just don't think it's the most dynamic whiskey out there. So when I see people freaking out about bourbons, I'm like, what are we doing here, guys? You know, <laughs> and a lot of that has to do with like secondary pricing and, and things of that nature and all these allocations and really what the business has become in that in that sense. I mean, to the point where anytime someone goes into like a different spirits group that I witness on Facebook and it's like, hey, what would be the the pappy of tequila what would be the pappy of scotch you know because that's always the reference point right right pappy van winkle being the unobtainable or the most valuable bourbon out there and um very swiftly it's always met with get that bourbon shit out of here like that is not welcome in this community that doesn't exist in this community we don't know why you guys are idiots we've learned over time that the um, the bourbon craze really doesn't extend beyond the U.S. Based on some of the um, some of the things that we've done for our for our sexy bottles, right? For our That's sexy true. auction bottles, correct. So, so that I just you know we got to get that out there. It's not that I it's not that I hate bourbon. Bourbon tastes very good. It's just it's all because of the regulations behind it. It's very much so in the same vein. Whereas I think with single malts, you can go so many different directions with a single malt. 
that um, that there's just a lot more variety there. And so with that being the case, I just I just don't waste a whole lot of time on bourbon. However, I was drinking one of our new Cotton Hollows, which is a bottler based out of Texas. And um, this is their new straight bourbon whiskey out of um, out of Bardstown. And what these guys do, which is similar to a lot of American whiskeys that are out there, is they source from different distilleries and then um, bottle it underneath their own label. So they typically do a Texas straight bourbon, then they do a rye, and then they have various one-offs. And so this one-off is a is a five-year-old that's at 46.5% um, ABV, and it is... I don't know. It's just, it's just a, it's, it's a good looking bottle. I like the colors on it. It's red and black, which is always, always a good, good time for me. And it's just a well-made, well-made whiskey. They don't release who it's from. And then if you look at Bardstown, you know, there's a few distilleries in Bardstown. So it's kind of like rolling the dice. My guess is it's coming from Four Roses. The, and my, you know, the reason for that is that they do sell a lot of whiskey, um, they let people source from them. So I'm thinking that's what it is, but Oh, it just, it just was really good. And then I also was sipping on the, um, the Texas straight bourbon. And that one is really interesting because they use some black corn in it as well. Oh, and, yeah. and it's just, it's, it's so bizarre. It's one of those whiskeys that when you're drinking it, you're like, I don't know if I like this or not, but I'm going to keep drinking it so I can try to figure it out. That's you great. Know? I love that. I love that uh, that experience. Yeah, and and I can't and I can't tell you whether or not I have found a conclusion there. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna continue to drink it. I'm probably gonna bring you these bottles, let you try it, and see what you think. Um, but uh, but but again, oh, you know, if I to, have to, to, I have to. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, you know. At the end of the day, I I just I want to clear this up. I don't hate bourbon. In fact, it tastes very good. I just think that if it's priced appropriately, I'm completely on board. It's just so many bourbons have gotten so out of control. And, you know, and I'm not, I'm also not against source whiskey because sourcing whiskey is a very popular, you know, practice. And in this situation tonight, I'm drinking a source whiskey and it's great. It's a really great whiskey, but it's also going to be affordable, you know? And I think that's where, where we start to lose focus with a lot of different, different other brands that have kind of like, Oh, they, they turn into what I call these hype whiskeys. And when the hype gets too big, they just, the, the price never matches the flavor profile, you know? And even in some of these ones that, that I have that are well known when you have the difference between, let's say like this one, a five-year bourbon and then a 20 year, the flavor profile is so similar. It's definitely, you know, you can definitely tell it's mellowed a little bit and it definitely drinks more balance from start to finish. But, you know, it just, it blows my mind when people really like freak out over some of this stuff. I just, I just don't get it. So um, that's really where most of my issues come with, uh, with bourbon. Not much more than that. Fair. Uh, I, you know, I, I I tend to agree with that. Um, you know, I, I like drinking bourbons um, when I'm at home, uh, usually as like sort of a wind down spirit, because it's it's something that to me is not terribly um, intellectually draining. It's not something I have to think too hard about. You know, it's kind of like watching a fun like action comedy movie. 
Uh, right. Like it's great. It's fun. There's some really amazing ones out there, but they are what they are, you know? And, um, uh, I think oftentimes when people, you know, you, you see the, Hey, I'm just getting into whiskey question, you know, wh- what should I, what should I have? And you're like bourbon, you know, like, uh, you know, which bourbons, any bourbon, because there's so many regulations in place that you're not going to have anything terrible if it's actually bourbon or if it's straight bourbon, you know, like you're, you're going to be fine. And you can kind of figure out who you like over, you know, over time of, of consuming their spirits. You know, I definitely have my, my favorites in there, but I don't really, there aren't any bourbons, bourbon brands out there that I, that I hate because they all, they're all regulated so heavily that they can't be bad. You know? Yeah, and just so for so for people at home to the the rules that make bourbon so so similar to what we've talked about with designations of origin when it comes to mezcals, um, rums, R H U M, champagne is probably the most infamous one that everybody kind of knows about. Bourbon has the same rules that that were put into place, and you know this is designed to protect the name. Um, and there's five rules that essentially make bourbon bourbon. The first one, and probably the most misunderstood one, is that it must be made in the United States. A lot of people think that it has to be made in Kentucky. That's not the case. It just has to be made in the United States. So again, when I was talking about that Texas straight bourbon earlier, that is um, that is obviously from Texas, not Kentucky. And there are people who have argued with me over that. They obviously were wrong, but it happened. Um, the next rule is aging must take place in new charred uh, oak barrels. So with that being the case, that's also why you see so many, uh, oak barrels all around the world that other people are aging in, whether it be tequila or scotch is because they have to be new barrels to be, to be made with for bourbon. So one time use, then they're out. Um, and I think the, the thing that's the most telling for, for bourbon and its biggest influencer in terms of flavor is going to be the mash bill has to consist of at least 51% corn. So again, your mash bill is going to be all the different grains that go into, into um, the fermentation. And that's what's going to, so with bourbon, it has to be at least 51% corn from there. You're going to have rye. You could have barley. Um, a couple other people get weird with stuff, but those are pretty much your two other ones that you see the most of is, is rye and barley with that. Um, even though it's 51% corn, people tend to usually tend to go much higher than that. Um, and so what corn is going to give you is, is more of like that sweeter taste and something that's like really familiar and, and common with when it comes to bourbon. Uh, the you whiskey know, I, cannot... I, I... Uh, sorry, go ahead. I was, I was two more, two you. more, two more things, and then you can just beat them all up. Um, whiskey cannot enter the barrel at higher than 125 proof. Um, so, you know, basically, after you distill it, you want to make sure that there's still enough of the flavor profile left. Obviously, the higher that you distill something, the more flavors that you can you can start to rip away from from your base product. And then nothing can be added but water and only to lessen the proof when necessary. So that's when you start getting into like flavored, um, flavored whiskeys and stuff like that. So like fireball can never be bourbon. Um, yeah. Those and, and are even, your, even your some of those are, are starting to like stretch, you know, I mean, you're starting to see like barrel, like secondary finishes, uh, starting to see like, um, you know, like a uh, port finish and sherry finish. Yeah. I mean, bell meat is a great example of that. Yeah. 
Bellamy does um, all kinds of amazing finishes and stuff. But in order to qualify for that bourbon, they have to hit all those marks beforehand. And then there's different influences that come after. Yeah. Well, I mean, for a long time, you know, that wasn't allowed. And it was something that sort of quietly became allowed through bourbon, um, you know, because you weren't allowed to touch anything other than new oak, you know, so those finishing would then be not, not legitimate. You know, you wouldn't be able to call it bourbon um, in that case. Um, I think the finishing is, is this new um, phenomenon that we're seeing because the market's growing so big and, and there needs to be at least some variation for, for the market to sustain uh, the, the volume, right? So mm-hmm. um, I think one of what I will say about, about bourbons is for me, learning about spirits, um, learning from bourbon producers um, really, really opened my eyes to the rest of the world and how I should be discussing spirits and how I should be asking questions about spirits. Um, you know, going to Kentucky, you, you learn a lot from these guys who've been doing it for generations, who've been producing whiskey their entire life. Um, you know, and they are more than willing to tell you everything that there is that goes into their bourbons. You know, my first time at four roses, um, you know, I, I straight up just asked like, Hey, what's, what's your formula? Like, what's your recipe? You know? And you know, they, they're like, Oh yeah, it's 70% uh, corn, which is typical. You know, they're like anybody who says otherwise is probably lying to you or they're just doing something really strange, you know? Um, uh, Cause most bourbons are sit about like 70, 15, 15, 17, 20, 10. Right. Um, Cause that's, it's cheap. It's easier to get it. It retains a lot of that sort of that classic bourbon flavor, um, you know, and they'll tell you because they're like they spend, you know, millions of dollars every year trying to maintain the continuity from batch to bit from batch to batch, no matter where they're buying their their product, where, you know, their their grains. Um, and so learning that and talking to those guys and then coming back home and talking to reps who are like, well, that's, you know, we can't, we can't share that knowledge where, you know, that's proprietary. You're like, okay, well you're full of shit then. Cause either you don't know, or you're hiding something. Um, because if you talk to the guys who actually make the shit, they're all, most of them are very, very open about what they're doing because good luck trying to repeat it. Well, and that's, and that's exactly it. I know that I've brought this up before, and this is from, um, you know, I heard this from Mitch Wilson, the Black Todd ambassador, which I just think is so perfect is, you know, I have, and I, and I know you do as well, you know, numerous cookbooks in my home. Okay. And one of them is from Richard Blaze, who's one of my favorite chefs. And I tell you what, despite having all of his recipes and all of his notes and exactly in him telling me word for word how to make his stuff, I suck at cooking food compared to Richard Blaze. <laughs> and that is going to be the case for all the, you know, uh, other things as well. And, and we've talked about this with, with some of our other friends and like the process of learning and things like that is like, you know, we, we love to try new spirits from people and, and new, new projects from people. And it's like, and unfortunately, 
most of the, or not unfortunately, but part of the process is like, it's probably going to suck. Right. And mm-hmm. when you have these guys that have been, you know, whether it was so like at four roses, you know, these guys have been doing it for so long that they, they're, it's just so second nature to them. Or if you're talking about, you know, blenders, like they've been doing it for so long, the nuances that they're able, that they're able to pick out, like it just blows my mind, you know? And it's like, and I think that my palate is actually pretty decent at this point. But then I listen to some of these people talk, you're just kind of like, oh man, I don't, I don't know anything, you know? And again, you can have the whole playbook in front of you. But I mean, I remember one company that I worked for, we were sitting in a meeting and we were, we were sourcing a bourbon. And I remember asking what the mash bill was for it in a, in an internal meeting at like a, um, God, was it, uh, an all like a GSM, which is general sales meeting where everybody came in from all over the United States and was, was basically laughed at and was like, Oh, well, don't worry. Cause you know, um, we know that you have a bunch of suspender wearing bartenders that want to know that stuff, but you know, we are, we're going to play this one pretty close to the chest. So we're not releasing that information. And I just was thinking to myself, wow. you know, first we'll of all, yourself. F you, cause that's ridiculous. Yeah. But then also it was like, I'm the chest. I'm part of the chest. <laughs> yeah. How do I, yeah. how do I not get to know this? You know? <laughs> and it was this, and it was actually the same thing with my first job, you know, working with a very prominent rum and trying to figure out more details. And I just always got, the runaround. And it just blew my mind that even internally, there's things that people try to hide. And I think as, as we've moved forward, you know, in this industry, and it started with food, where everybody really started to give a shit about where their stuff was coming from, what was in their food and everything like that, that's now happening with spirits to a lesser degree, for sure. I mean, at the end of the day, like we're, we're merchants of death, we're dealing with poisons here. But it's, it's something that I, th- I think you're just, you're only going to be embraced if you're, if you're forthcoming with all of your information, because again, like you said, good luck trying to duplicate what we do. Yeah. You know, you know, that was, I mean, that was Jim Rutledge who, who used to be the, you know, retired as the master distiller of, or four roses. You know, he looked me dead in my eye and was like, yeah, I get my corn from here. I get my wheat from here. I get my rye from there. We buy it in this amount here's my stills. We, you want to try? Like, you know, he, I mean, he was just legit. Just like, yeah, good luck. This is where I do it. This is where I buy. It. I, you want, you want the address of the farm where I buy it to Sure. Not a problem. I'll give that to you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, for, for everybody at home, Jim Rutledge was the former master distiller for, um, for roses. He retired in, Ooh, say like four or five years ago. Yeah, 2015. Yeah, yeah um, you know, and like, and like most of these guys, like they they can't really walk away. They just take a they just take a little bit of a of a less lesser role, you know. But um, somewhere else, I think he the last time I had heard he was at Castle and Key doing some stuff with them. Yeah, yeah, he. I mean, he's always I think um, you know consulting on and being part part partners of other things but i know he's working on um a cream in kentucky is his is his new project um with uh with kyle mowry's dad actually kyle oh, mowry is a, he's a he's a good friend of ours uh here and his uh uh his father's a big deal in the distribution com- uh game 
and uh, Kyle and his younger brother are both distributors and uh, and work work strongly with the the company that that their dad helped build. Um, but they're salt of the earth guys. I mean, they're just the best. Yeah, I like Kyle a lot. He's the best. He doesn't listen, so now we have to give him a reason to listen. But, um, <laughs> but well, yeah, we don't want to blow his ego up anymore. Yeah. So, um, so wow, we just really went off the rails on that one. That's okay. That's all right. It's good information, I believe. Jeez. <laughs> yes. Yes. Twenty-four minutes in, <laughs> and now it's time for our opinion on facts that we heard from reputable sources. <laughs> So this week, thestreet.com came out with an article where they discussed the valuations of different spirit companies and wine companies and beer companies around the world and what happened between 2019 to 2020. Obviously, none of us are confused about uh, what happened over the past year, and it's been really interesting for everybody involved. Um, One thing that I want to point out before we get into the actual value of all these different brands is this writer is talking about the value of branding and kind of like their forward, you know, into the, um, into the statistics. And one of the things that she's talking about is coronavirus and the coronavirus as it applies to Corona beer. Um, and as, as she's setting the scene for, for Corona, I want to read this part to you because, and I'm, and I'm pretty sure you're going to, you're exactly going to hit like what bothered me immediately about it. But, but uh, but bear with me here. So this is in the second paragraph. But branding is a mysteriously powerful thing. And good branding means uh, people continue to reach for that frosty cold corona because they associate it with something far more refreshing than a rampant virus, even though they have to dangle the long neck in their fingers at home instead of in a tiki bar. It appears that despite the unfortunate Takayo, which I don't know what that means, the world's most valuable beer brand lives to see another year. <laughs> um so we're going to discuss the elephant in the room with with uh uh what beer you actually drink in a tiki bar well if you're drinking a beer in a tiki bar yeah if you're drinking a beer in a tiki bar at all and and so i've i've been thinking about this and i'm kind of like okay Cor- corona beer obviously this you know this this mexican lager and is it, is this a situation where this writer wrote this and was like first put instead of in a Mexican restaurant, right? Or instead of in a cantina, did she worry that is that racist that I put I, a Mexican I don't think beer? So. I mean, if you look at the if you look at the the marketing for Corona, everything's about being in a beach and hanging out with friends, and even even their like their holiday uh, ad that they've been running for the last you know fucking 15 years if not more is you know on an island somewhere and then a, a palm tree lights up with lights right so i think you could be forgiven for associating it with sort of the island lifestyle how many how many coronas have you seen served up in a tiki bar <sighs> well i mean i don't know i you know when i worked when i worked at at uh not rabbit at um jungle bird it it definitely got called for a lot i will say that um well and that might lead us into the next point is it necessarily because someone is feeling the tiki vibe when it comes to corona or is it because 
Corona is the most valuable beer brand in the world, currently valued at $8.1 billion. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I should point out also that people ask for margaritas as well. So which is we know is the number one requested cocktail in the world. So uh, I think both can be true at the same time. I don't think that they're mutually exclusive, but that's a lot of freaking money. Yeah. Now, and this is something I think is interesting. And 2019, their valuation came in at 8.2 billion. So they lost a million. That's that's right. They lost a million dollars in value to 2020, which if you think about it, the fact that they're the brand name shares the name with them with arguably the most infamous, you know, virus known to man. Now it's like, Oh, you only lost a million dollars in value. Way to go. You know? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, that's really impressive. I mean, we covered a story earlier this year, right when, uh, you know, Corona was sort of really, really hitting. And uh, we we discussed how how Corona beer was taking a hit, uh, but only a million dollars. That's a that's a win, I would say. Especially considering that now, you know, thinking back on that article, that people definitely made an association between the beer and the virus itself. Like they they were linking the two. Right. It was not it was not just like this this happenstance. Like people were legitimately like that's an issue. You can't drink that beer because it'll give you the virus like that. People were quoted as saying that, you know, which obviously, I mean, we're not talking about like, you know, road scholars or anything, but like Jesus, there was that, that was that level of confusion when it came to the brand and stuff like that. Um, so in, in this article, they round out the top 10 in beer, uh, wine and spirits. I, I pretty much just went with the top three. So your second, your second most valuable beer is Heineken, which was valued at seven billion dollars. They actually increased by two million over 2019, and then Budweiser came in third at six point four billion. They were the big losers here. They were valued at seven point six billion the year before, and as you can see, it dropped one point two. Um, down from from 2019, um, I I can't imagine what that might have been outside of maybe the fact that people wanted to drink something that was a little bit more expensive over this past year since they had more income, you know, or, or less money going to bars and restaurants. I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. Um, I, I, you know, I mean, I, I mean, to be fair, there's a lot that goes into it, right? Like, but I think, I think some of it has to do with people are at home. I mean, that's gotta be, that's gotta be a major part of it. And you think it's more of like a restaurant brand? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll live with that. All right. Moving on to the wine category and definitely, definitely dominated by, um, by the sparkling here, but the first one came in at uh, was Moet, and Moet is one point four billion dollars. Then you get uh, Chengyo, then the number two spot at one point three billion, so they are jockeying for the top spot. And then there's a pretty, pretty decent drop off, and then you get into Shandong at nine at uh, nine hundred eighty five million dollar valuation on on the brand this year. Um, 
I I was surprised to see such a stark difference between the top three in in the wine category and the top three in beer. Like it's just it, it was kind of crazy to me that that I mean I I fully expected beer to be bigger, but not that much bigger. You know, almost seven million seven billion dollars more valuable. Right. You know, than your than your leading wine brand. It's just crazy to me. Yeah, I mean. Some of that has to come off in, in terms of like cost of goods, right? I mean, the investment in making wine has to cost a ton more also, right? In terms of like skilled labor, in terms of land value, uh, in terms of equipment, I would assume. Maybe not. I don't know. Um, in terms of time, I mean, I mean, of all things, like making making beer takes a fraction of the amount of time as it takes to create champagne. Um, so that's, that's got to come into some sort of a uh, play here. I will say though, good for uh, Louis, uh, LVMH uh, as a, as a parent company, having uh, two of their brands in the, in the top three here. I mean, good on you guys. Uh, LVMH is Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy, which is uh, the, premier um uh what's that luxury brand uh empire in the world now because they just they last year they just purchased um uh tiffany's as well so they've got they've got that that corner of the market just locked in there uh, but you know moe they own killing it obviously and then um and then what was what was the third one again? Sorry, it was uh, Shandon. Oh, it's Shandon. That's right. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, good for and them. Then, yeah. So, um, so, so, so there's your so there's your valuations on there. On this one, they didn't list what they were worth the year before, which I thought was interesting, and it even became even more interesting when I moved on to spirits because then it just decided to start listing things again. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I will, so, I, will ter- I will say that. Um, I recently experienced a shortage. I was trying to uh, work with with uh, an account to supply a huge amount of of bottles of wine, um, and what they wanted everything was from Moet, and uh, we couldn't we couldn't get a hold of it. They're, they just it wasn't even that they wanted so many. They wanted thirty cases, which is a lot. I mean, that's that's a lot of cases. But yeah. in nor- Northern California, that simply didn't exist. So. Um, I, I know that the company is experiencing a shortage and my guess is it probably has to do with a huge uptick in, in consumption. Right. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, like there really is so much they can produce from year to year. Right. right. And with these right. record numbers that we're seeing across the board, it's gotta be, uh, crazy. Yeah. And especially um, cause it, it was champagne. It had to get laid down a couple years ago. So, right. Right. Yeah. And obviously nobody saw this coming. Uh, this brings us into the spirits world and absolutely staggering numbers. Um, the first one is a brand called Mutai and Mutai actually saw an increase from 2019 to 2020 of $9 billion in value. Um, and par- and, but if that doesn't sound staggering enough, it was 
valued at $30.5 billion in 2019 and is now worth $39.3 billion. A lot of that having to do with a, an agreement that they entered with. Who who was the company? Pernod uh, Ricard. Bacardi. Yeah. Uh, Pernod so, Ricard. Yeah. Pernod Ricard. Um, Pernod Ricard and a distribution deal. Um, this is a Baiju. So a Baiju, if you are one of our original listeners, is a distilled rice spirit that is actually the most consumed spirit in the world. And it virtually doesn't exist here in the States. I mean, you can technically pick it up, but its footprint is excessively minimal. Um, but that is uh, the most valuable brand in the world at almost $40 billion, which is I mean, that's I just staggering. Yeah. Yeah. It's. Um, it's super crazy, and then there, it just doesn't end because then your second most valuable brand is another uh, Baiju, which is Wuliange, and that is valued at $20.9 billion. That also saw an increase of $4 billion. And then the last one is uh, Yang, and that is $7.7 billion. That one actually saw a loss. So I think I think they're, the profits were getting cut into but um, but uh, yeah, that was at seven point seven billion dollars. You have to get let's see here to the number five spot before you see a more recognizable brand. Um, you know, you're going to find this hard to believe, but the number four was also a Baiju. Uh, number five is Jack Daniels. And Jack Daniels was valued at $4.1 billion. They also saw a little bit of a decrease at 4.3 the year before. And then right after them, you get into um, Johnny Walker, which was at a $4 billion value. And is that was down um, $6 million from the previous year was at 4.6. And then this was not something that we were planning on discussing today, but I did see it. And it's actually relevant to this conversation. But... Diageo, who owns Johnny Walker, in addition to a ton of other Scotch distilleries, um, is going to be reevaluating their staff. And I think that was they have around five hundred or so people that they that they keep uh, that they're producing all their different whiskey, all the various distilleries. They're going to be reevaluating these people, and they're going to be making at least twenty two cuts to their workforce, which a lot of people are now projecting that they could be either closing or shuttering some distilleries or potentially selling them off, uh, which I just thought was really interesting. And if you're looking at something like this, where it says Johnny Walker's down over last year, that could be a contributing reason. But again, you know, at the number five spot for Jack Daniels being $4.1 billion, you know, that's a, you know, $35 billion off of the, the Baiju and we're not, and we're, and we have nothing to do with it. We're not drinking any of it for the most part here in the United States, which is just crazy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And their, their, um, partnership with, with Pernod Ricard, it, as of right now, America falls way, way down on the, uh, on the triage list for, for where they're looking into increasing, uh, their, their market share. They're still, they're looking into moving further into Eastern Asia 
as well as like farther, I think, south into the Pacific Rim uh, first before even really like developing the American market. So it's pretty, pretty stunning. I will say I, I was I was shocked that Johnny Walker was as high as it was. I mean, obviously, Johnny Walker's isn't is an iconic brand. Right. But I, I had no idea that it was at that large. I'm yeah. obviously a majority of that's coming from the United States, but I'm, I'd be interested to see sort of what, you know, geographically where that market share lies. Um, a lot of it is in Asia, actually. Yeah. Not surprising. So dating back to dating back to my Diageo days, a lot was, was there. And um, when they were hitting America with a lot more regulations on terms of spirits and stuff like that in different, um, and just like really starting to regulate spirits more within uh, China, big hit to those number. So I, I went ahead and I and I googled the the Muay Thai um, to see kind of like what Muay Thai Muay Thai just to see <laughs> Muay Thai is, uh, is Muay Thai is uh, fighting. I know, fighting. but Muay Thai. <laughs> so you can actually buy this at Total Wine. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. Okay. I mean, I mean, being the number one most popular brand in existence by leaps and bounds, it doesn't surprise me that. Yes. That it so, as you described, is from China is the most revered of Chinese liquors, primarily consumed as a celebratory drink. Its aroma and taste are reminiscent of soy sauce, pear, walnut, and almond. This is a spirits direct, so this is like an in-house brand for Total Wine, which I think is interesting that they brought them on in that way. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense, but it's interesting. Um, this is a three seven five. Okay, Chris. We usually wait before we do our sexy auction bottle, but this isn't an auction bottle. But I want you to guess the price, no matter you know. Regardless, what do you think this bottle, a three seven five, primarily consumed as a celebratory drink, that is reminiscent of soy sauce, goes for <laughs> at your local Total Wine? Uh, I want to say, I want to say for, for uh, 375 ML. Yep. I'm going to say 1475. $14.75. Yes. I cannot believe how close you are not to the number. It is $269.99. Holy fuck. So are we got to go buy this bottle now, right? Oh my God. Yeah. Like... This is this is a must have. This is a three seven five, you guys. This is two hundred and sixty nine. Like, I'm at a, at a. There was a brief moment where I thought my settings were on pesos, where I was like, "That's not right," and um, that's not the no. It's it's definitely two hundred and sixty nine dollars. My jaw is on the floor. In no way did I expect that. Uh, I'm blown away. I have to know. I have to know now. Yeah, I'm, and then I'm looking at Wine Globe, which is just, I guess, another retailer, and this one has it listed for three sixty nine. Oh my god, we have no idea what we're missing here, sir. I that's very, very apparent. We need to, we need to go out, and we need to, we need to find a reason to celebrate. That's for sure. Um, it looks like okay. Now I'm looking, I'm looking around. Um, I'm seeing that there's a 200 ml at High Time Sellers, which is down in Costa Mesa. They have it listed for $139. So that's oh cool. God. 
Yeah. Well, let's say total wine in Arden in the Sacramento area, you can get it. You can get a 200 ml for, for 149. Oh my no, god! It looks like that's what we're doing there. All right then. This is this is bananas, sir. I I need to I need to find this. I need to get this. How do I explain this to my wife? You you can't. And that's uh, that's all right. And, um, <laughs> I think she's bought in this far, and uh, she already kind of knows knows what this is. She's like, "Yep, you're an idiot." Yep, whatever, fine. This is crazy. This is absolutely crazy. Well, I'm huh. just gonna pour myself some more of this centimervis, and uh, I'll just try to imagine adding soy sauce into this. Oh my god, they have a thirty year. Guess the price on that. Uh, $1,000. Again, so close to not being right at all. $2,399. Oh, my God. I have to know. Okay. All right. Well, we're going we're gonna to do our job and track down um, whoever the, the Muay distributor is here in the United States, in Northern California, in the Sacramento area, and we will figure that out. Yeah, what makes maybe it tough maybe is... I will bring a bottle into into good bottle, and so that way you, dear listeners, can try to figure that out as well. I think the the only tough thing is like anytime a product is is like spirits direct with Total Wine, that means that Total Wine controls its distribution. Yeah, yeah, which is not ideal for you. Correct. So we'll figure that out. All right, moving on. This is... Oh my god. <laughs> Yeah. Uh. Well, now into more valuable spirits, but in this case, this is just somebody finding it in their home. Um, there is a uh, young couple in the uh, northeast of the United States who was was doing a bunch of refabricating of their home and found as they were going through it a bunch of vintage bottles from the prohibition era within the walls. And then they also found like this trap door where they, he climbed the guy climbed down into it and was just kind of pulling out all these different bottles. And um, what he was able to find was a Scottish whiskey called old smuggler, which I think is great uh, name for this. Appropriate. Old Smuggler Gaelic Whiskey. The house that, that they were in was owned previously by this eccentric uh, character who had kind of had some shady business dealings, obviously, if they found all of this um, Prohibition-era style spirit all over the place. And um, 66 bottles in total were found. I mean, it was to the point where they were, like, removing, um, like, not drywall, but like like the wood on you know that was making up the walls, and they were just finding bottles in these little packets uh, behind each one. And I think one of the as what the guy was quoted as saying is like one of the indicators that it was something like worth getting into was parts of the house that should have been used like sealed with nails were done with screws, and that's because if you use a screw, obviously you can unscrew it and get it off. If it's a nail, it's a lot more difficult. Which I was like, I had never thought of it like that before, but. That's something to look Neither for if, you were, yeah. if you're ever hanging out in an old house and you just see <laughs> screws being used, you're like, there might be something hiding in there. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of the bottles were 
are were either broken or they had had some damage where they had lost a lot of liquid but the ones that were in pretty good pretty good shape have actually been valued at about a thousand dollars a bottle so um the couple decided they're going to hold on to a few of them but then they're also going to sell a bunch of as well and uh you know just kind of like a fun cool prohibition era style uh story here which would you imagine if you bought a house and you were you know renovating i've done a lot of different renovations to my house and i have not found any cool shit yet so no I'm very i jealous. you know i um that's the dream right is like um is like finding a treasure map in the walls or something like that um i i i do own two bottles well two bottles yes still currently one of them's just open um that i purchased off of a man who uh who found he was doing renovations and found you know, a bunch of cases underneath the stairs in, in a San Francisco apartment. Um, so he sold me two bottles of like 1936 doers white label. Um, so that, that's pretty damn cool. Um, the, the safe at my, uh, at the, at, at a uh, good bottle, um, is inherited and it's a two part safe, uh, like a, a two door safe and the lower door, um is broken and we we haven't been able to afford to get into it but i really hope that there's like babe ruth baseball cards or like og uh og matchbox cars or you know just a pile of cash that'd be that'd be really cool (laughs) (laughs) just something that is um amazing and fun yeah yeah not just not just Maybe it's someone's like, gumball collection. I don't know. Even that would still be increasingly exciting. Right. Right. That, yeah, that, that could be it. I mean, I remember in, in high school listening to one of my teachers talk about them, um, him, him going into his mother's house and they were about to just throw a bunch of stuff out. And he was like, no, hold on. And let me just go through this stuff. Like mom grew up during the great depression. So we need to check all these different things. And his brother was like, what are you talking about? He started to cut open the mattress and pulled out thousands of dollars. Oh my God. And he was like, and if, you know, during that time, um, during the great depression, you know, a lot of faith was lost in banks. That's right. So what people started to do was hiding it throughout their house. And so, you know, his brother was about to throw out, this old ratty mattress that actually had thousands of dollars in it that she had just stowed away. And then they just, and they it just turned into a treasure hunt for them. Um, that's, that's great. Which was, which was just uh, wild, right. That, that you could, that you could do that. But yeah, it's, it's definitely, I think the dream for, for anybody or, you know, like one of the reasons that, that uh, storage wars show was so popular is that you wanted to get that, that cool thing, that cool find, you know? Yeah. I, what I thought was really cool about this story as well was um, talking about the history of, of the previous owner. Uh, the previous owner was, uh, was a gentleman known as Count Adolf Humpfner, uh, who died a mysterious death, uh, quote unquote mysterious. Um, and the only man who apparently w- uh, had witnessed who found the count after he had died suddenly um, was the mayor who was then uh, put onto the case as the inspector for the case. And the man, the man, uh, the mayor had then traveled to Germany and traveled to Austria and talked to friends and relatives of, of the count and came back and somehow never, never solved the crime. Uh, but the count's 
Fortune, who at the time of his passing in the nineteen in the nineteen thirties, uh, was estimated at about one hundred and forty thousand dollars then. Uh, I don't know what that conversion would be now, but it's probably pretty significant, uh, especially if you are titled account. Uh, and uh, I I thought that was that was pretty pretty fun little piece of history. The other thing that I saw in this story that really interests me uh, was the labeling on on Old Smuggler. There's uh, on the back of it for for the packaging. It says "Have a gay old time." And it's uh, gay is spelled G-A-E. And it occurred to me, and I don't know why it had never occurred to me before. And, and again, this is something that I'm sure somebody else can can uh, shed some light on. Uh, but because this is the Gaelic whiskey, I was wondering, is does like having a gay old time sort of, is that a shorthand way of saying having like a Gaelic time? Is that is that sort of where that turn of phrase comes from? Oh man, I have no idea. I know it's it just dawned on me when I was when I was looking at the at the um, the advertising and the packaging for for the bottles that they had found. Another really cool part was that the bottles were were found in sleeves of hay, and they were like they were perfectly preserved in these sleeves of hay, and then wrapped in wrapped in in paper, which is really really cool. It's kind of they look like like um, the ends of like a witch's broomstick or something like that. It was kind of, they're just like, and then they just extract a bottle of scotch from it. It's freaking neat. That is very neat. Okay. So if you could, if you could find any bottle in your walls, what bottle would it be? Oh, like generically or like something very specific? I don't know. Go nuts. Have fun with this. This is a pretty open-ended question. I would. Yeah. Let's see. So, um, let's let's take into the history of California where we are. We're in you know Sacramento, so we're in the we're in the foothills. Maybe uh, nineteen, you know, the forty niners. I said nineteen forty nine. Obviously, I mean eighteen forty nine. Sorry, everybody. Um, Gold rush era was popular at that point in time. It was like brandy. Yeah, I think like so. Finding like some old ass brandy or some like uh, old ass like uh, knockoff pisco would be really fucking cool to find uh, around here or, you know, just generic, generic American whiskey at that point in time would be, that'd be rad. Yeah. I, yeah, I could, I feel you on that one. What about you? Um, I'm trying to think and I wish I would have thought about this earlier, but <laughs> there is, there's a, um, some rums that have been used in original cocktail recipes. And I don't know, it might be the Mai Tai, but, um, you know, old ass Appleton. What's that? Like an old ass Appleton or something like that. Yeah. But I think it's, I think it's something else. And I know I've read about it in, um, in Martin Kate's Tiki book. And I know he has one of the bottles too, but, um, that's right. And he won't disclose where he got it either. Um, which, which is amazing. That's you know. good Good for him and also incredibly frustrating. Yeah, so I'm going to have to go read Smuggler's Cove and yeah. um, and figure out what it was. But it's, it's I want to say it's a it's a Martinique rum. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Or potentially, actually, hmm, I don't know. 
but it's I'll, I'll I'll we'll follow up on this one because it's it's something that I definitely want to to get into, and it's just it's just cool that they kind of make suggestions on what they think the the recipe is supposed to be, and it's um it's based off of I think it's based off of Don's or one of Don's original recipes, not a Trader Vic actually. Hmm. I don't know. This is this is riveting stuff. I apologize. Um, <laughs> I cannot figure it out. But it would be that rum. It would be that rum that they think was in. It was either the Mai Tai or maybe it was a zombie or or something. Um, let's see. Maybe I'll get maybe I'll get lucky. A bullshit Google search. Nope. No, I won't. Okay, I'm gonna go through that book tonight, and maybe I'll put that in the Instagram post. But uh, but yeah, that's a, that's I would want to have that rum that was originally used in one of the you know initial tiki recipes, which I, it might be a mai tai. I don't know. I'm gonna I look forward to getting corrected on that. But that's 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 all I got. That's what I want. I want that one. That's a good call. Yeah. Yeah. You ready for your sexy bottle of the week? Because I'm ready. Okay. So, what I have for you this week, Chris, and we will get back to that rum bottle from last week but it goes on it goes on the auction block in three days so we'll have to follow up on that one but till then what i have for you is the karuzawa 33 year old sherry cask also known as the emerald geisha which comes in this really beautiful box and great artwork it was bottled by Elixir Distillers. So those are our friends at Single Malt of Scotland, Portis Gag, Black Tot, all them. As I said, it is a sherry cask. The bottle strength is 54.4%. It was a 70 CL. The distillery is currently closed. Um, the Karazawa produced outstanding whiskeys, many of which received international acclaim. They've released almost 300 single casts, which are becoming increasingly rare and rare as demand soars. This one, again, from Elixir Distillers. And only one of the 170 bottles drawn from a single cast have been were released. So. Wait, oh, wait, what? Say Let's that see. part again. It says only? one of only 170 bottles drawn from the single sherry cask. Oh, so, uh, so this cask only yielded 170 bottles. This oh, is one okay. of those. I thought you were saying, holy shit. Yeah. I thought you were saying there was only one bottle. Yeah, released. sorry. Um, okay. And this was released in February of 2018. This sold in the UK. And it sold, let's see. It does not have a sale there okay so with that knowledge 33 year old sherry cast japanese whiskey that is now from a disclosed distillery comes in a nice wooden box 
What do you think it's worth? Uh, when does it say when it was bottled? Um. Well, I mean, it says it sold in 2000, 2018. Is that right? Yes. Uh, and it's, it's 30 year. The, the distillery closed down in 2001. I know that. Um, beautiful. Also, also lauded as, as the most scotch like within Japanese whiskey. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the sherry cask finishing, which was, which was pretty typical of Kurosawa. Um, I'm going to, well, I'm, I'm going to let you answer that question if you find it. Um, it's, uh, it's it, nowhere on the bottle or anything. I mean, the bottle's gorgeous. I mean, it's in perfect condition. Um, it's, it's pristine. Again, it's, it's a newer bottle, but it's 30 year old. Um, my guess is from, from this cask being 30 years old, someone bought the cask as, or, um, you know, it was probably in a holding company somewhere. Um, well, I mean, it was Elixir. Elixir has huge facilities where they do store. Right, right, right. So since they, 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 they stored that, they bottled it. Um, I mean, they I'm released being, it in 2008, in February 2018. So it was probably bottled so in 2017. Right. It's probably bottled right then. Um, I'm going to go with $26,000. $26,000. Okay. So I had to do some searching to figure out what the hell this symbol was in front of it. Oh. <laughs> and it was sold at auction for 6,000 pounds, but it was pounds sterling, um, which I don't necessarily understand. That roughly translates to $8,031.54 as well sold for an auction. I am uh, blown away by that. Maybe yeah. because it's maybe because it's it's it was bottled so recently. You know, when we we're when we we're talking about the, the playing cards um uh, series that distillery also clo- closed down relatively recently, but perhaps because it was that specific series um, and they'd been bottled so long ago. And that series is, is highly collectible uh, mm-hmm. that those, that those finished off more. Uh, so I was, I was equating the two in my head. And so that was clearly, clearly a misunderstanding on my part. But I think that's also like part of what's been really interesting about this new segment, right? Is trying to figure out the indicators on where the value is going to be like as we had discussed earlier, we applied an American mindset to a bourbon and it was, it could not have been more wrong. Right. 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 And I think with, in this situation, what makes this, and I think it's exactly what, exactly what you're saying. This is something that was bottled more recently. Um, even though the distillery has been closed for a long time, I think in the mind of, of any collector, like if you're telling me that this was released in February of 2018, it's like, I have very vivid memories from that month more than likely. You know, so it's like, yeah, if this is yeah. something I'm really into, I'm like, I'm like, it's like, didn't, I'd be like, didn't this just come out, you know? Um, and in fact, just looking at the, um, some of the other suggestions, like there was another one of these bottles that sold in the same auction. That uh, actually yeah, sold yeah, for less. Probably a lot, uh, a lot of them, you know, like, like three or four, huh? Or just, just one, one other. 
two of them. Okay, two all day. But I mean, but yeah, but we also have to assume it's like, you know, a, a lot of the time when it comes to as a bottle, like you said, has been bottled for longer, it's it's safer to assume some of it's been consumed, right? Right. So even though this this hits a lot of marks, right? This is a closed distillery. It's over 30 years old. It's it's at it's got a great ABV on it, but it was just released by Elixir Distillers. There's definitely reason to believe that they probably have more that they're sitting on, you know? So you could be like, oh, I'm just going to wait for this to come out, you know? Yeah, that's fair. Um, but I, it is it is really, really just kind of fun to look through all the rest of these Kurosawas and, and see that. But um, but yeah, so there so there you go. Not as expensive as, as we originally thought. So I guess the moral of the story is uh, invest in Kurosawa now, you know? <laughs> All $8,000 that you're ready. (laughs) You know who's dope? Them over there. And now it's time for my favorite segment of the week is that's our dope follows of the week where we pick out different Instagram accounts, Facebooks, websites, whatever the case may be for you guys to also go and follow because they give us a little joy in life, whether it be through the spirits industry or just completely outside of it. So with that, said chris who's your dope follow this week uh mine is on instagram and on twitter and it's independent restaurants uh spelled though at indp restaurants so independent is is abbreviated i indp restaurants and it's an account that was started um i should say actually a group that was started that started the account in order to help preserve and save independent restaurants, small mom and pop shops um, that, uh, that are struggling during COVID. And so it, the account really does a good job of um, vocalizing a lot of the struggles as well as giving actionable things that you can do to, to support and not just feel good concepts, but really, really developing um, action plans and things that you can do uh, community wise, and then also yourself to support local restaurants beyond, you know, going to buy gift cards, which, you know, is a nice idea. But in the long run, if you know, everybody shows up in six months with their $100 gift card, and cashes in that gift card, then, uh, you know, that restaurant would probably go under really fast. So, um, uh, INDP restaurants, all one word. Um, that's, that's what I got. That's a, that's a good one. I'm actually on their, on their email list and yeah, lots of actionable stuff. And, um, unfortunately it's, they're not seeing a tremendous amount of success right now. (laughs) You know, it's just, uh, we're, we're pushing a rock uphill. But um, but still, really love what they're what they're trying to accomplish, and um, you know have done have gotten some things done. Have you seen that meme that's going around right now about how much money Guy Fieri has raised so far? I have. I've seen multiple. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Twenty one like, million dollars. Twenty one million dollars for the mayor of Flavor Town. That's right, man. I take back every negative thing I've ever said about Guy Fieri. I've fallen in love with the man pretty significantly in the last two years. I, uh, I will say that I would, uh, I feel like I'd like to hang out with him. 
I, I'll say this. I've always been a closet Guy Fieri fan. And now I get to be out and proud with how much I've always enjoyed his shows and his cooking and just the 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 chaos of the things that he does. Um, <laughs> and I've actually listened to interviews with him. And there was like, you know how he's kind of like known for these bowler shirts? Yeah. He actually hates them. Yeah, and and his uh, and and the spiky blonde hair, which he's not allowed to undo either. Yeah, yeah, it's all part of his brand. That was and even like the the bowler shirt was like that's just what wardrobe had that day for one of his shows. It became his signature look. Yeah, <laughs> which is what a shame. Um, so so yours is yours is a very uplifting meme, uh, or you know account. Mine is also uplifting but in a much different way. Uh, mine is dinos and comics on Instagram. And this has become just the greatest thing ever. And basically what it does is it just depicts a lot of different situations. Um, but it's told from the perspective of comic book drawn dinosaurs. Amazing. And uh, the one that really got me in was like, Working's out, you know, working out or getting in shape is really not that hard. You just have to work out and eat better and do this. And the other dinosaur replies like, well, for how long? And then it goes back to that dinosaur and says, for the rest of your life. And then the dinosaur's response is, fuck. <laughs> um, and then, uh, and then like, there's one I'm looking at right now. And it's like, everyone is an individual looking, you know, individual deserving of love and respect, except me. I am trash. And it's just hilarious. And it's just like all these different things. And there's, but there's also just like a lot of stuff that it's like these really subtle, um, like mental, mental games that, that we, you know, constantly play with ourselves and stuff like that. And it's just, it's really interesting to see, um, them depicted by dinosaurs. And, um, so here's another one. It's like a, a dad dinosaur talking to his kid and his kid says, school sucks. He goes, I know what you have to do so you can get a job. He goes, what are jobs like? He goes, they suck. So <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things, like it's one of those accounts too. Like once you get turned on to it, like you just, you, you, you start going through and you're like, oh man, now I'm back in April of 2018 and I've read all these different strips now. Um, so yeah. So again, that's um, dinos and comics on on Instagram and I just, I absolutely love it. So definitely, definitely check it out. Those are our dope follows this week. The good bottle podcast is a production of fluid concepts. Music is by, uh, Leon and Chase Moore, two incredibly talented musician and musical brothers, uh, and produced by Drew and I. So, you know, sorry. And before we go and kill these bottles that we've been drinking, we ask that if you enjoyed today's episode, because obviously you did, please uh, put your foot on the ground, stomp on it a lot of times until it's a sub- subscribe button uh, gets pressed and then leave us a five star review in the same manner uh yeah you also we should also include in this moving forward to share us share us with all of your friends we have our like loyal listeners can you guys start sharing all of our stuff 
be like, this is another great episode because you tell us and we love that and we keep going for you. But tell other people, tell other people that this is actually somewhat like fun and entertaining, or at least we think it is. But yes, tell other people. I um, need I need that ex, uh, that external validation. It's like food to me and I feel like I've been starving lately. Any win that we can get, we'll take. Any scrap of food will take. Um, you can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook at the Good Bottle Podcast, and you can also support the podcast and our desire to buy the newest twelve days of Teshmas from Wine with Tesh, where he gives you twelve half bottles to really ring in the end of this shit year. It's it's a great value, but we gotta if we still gotta save up for it. So check out. 12 days of Teshmas at wine talk with Tesh and get yourself 12 days of shenanigans. And then also check out anchor.fm slash good bottle podcast. And if you have a cover, uh, if you have a story that you would like us to cover uh, poorly or, you know, really well, you should definitely hit us up. Or if you work for a brand that wants to be featured, you know, either poorly or really well, you should definitely email us at the good bottle podcast at gmail.com. And as a reminder, you can purchase the bottles that we drank on this episode at the Good Bottle Shop. So until next time, cheers, buddy. Cheers. Also, buy Chris's wine, not just Tesh's. That Tesh is cool. <laughs>